Just a programming note, as I mentioned in the last episode, this will probably be our last episode for the summer. I'm going to take a bit of a break, and then we'll be back in September full force. Probably our last guest for the summer, though, is somebody I'm really keen on talking to. This is uh, this is a time right now in Canada where we are welcoming Pope Francis to Canada. Um, he's come here for a reason. I want to give the date today is July 25th, and we're recording with Bob Watts today. Um, I met Bob briefly when I studied at Queen's University when I was doing my Master's of Public Administration at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's, and I had seen him from afar, and I've always heard remarkable things about him. And so there's no one who I'd, be, who I'd want to talk to, especially um, about Indigenous relations, about Indigenous policy, about the papal visit, than Bob Watts. Bob, thank you so much for joining Two Nobodies today. I'm, I was just telling you before we started recording that you're not actually the second nobody, but if you do <laughs> me the honor, maybe you can be the second nobody today. Yeah, Rupesh, I'm happy to be the uh, second uh, uh, nobody. I'll be like your, your wingman or something, and uh, <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just have some fun this evening. Yeah, well, thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, we can start with the papal visit, but I kind of want to hear a little bit more about your story. I actually don't know really anything about you beyond reading your bio and hearing a bit uh, pieces of, from other people. But what a what a diverse and remarkable path you've had so far. I don't know where you'd want to start, but I guess where where in the country were you were you born, and and maybe start off a little bit there, and sort of what brought you to to um, to this point. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I was born in, in Belleville, Ontario, a couple hours east of, uh, of Toronto. Uh, grew up at uh, Tyendinaga Reserve, which is a Mohawk community uh, right near Belleville. Lived there until I was um, um, in elementary school. And then my dad got a job in Coburg. And I spent you know the rest mm. of my youth, uh, elementary school, high school in Coburg. Um, went off to college in Belleville and uh, just worked my way through a, a lot of different jobs. Ended up in Toronto working with the Indigenous community. Um, after spending, actually I spent a short time over in Zaire, Africa. It was Zaire then, now it's the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And uh, right. just meeting the people there got me so interested in my own roots and my own family history. Um, spending time in the villages made me think about, you know, this is the, the way that people were. They're so gentle, so kind, so open, so honest. I thought, you know, this is probably like the story of my people in many ways. And really yeah. developed a deep desire to find out more about my my own self. I just kind of grew up just, well, I'm, I'm Indian. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, First Nation now, Indigenous, Aboriginal, but you know it was Indian then, and uh, mm. and really thinking nothing about that. That's just who I was. But then, being 
you know, taking that time to reflect on that and then getting involved with the Indigenous community in Toronto was such a blessing, such an eye-opener. The Native Canadian Centre in Toronto, I don't know, in some ways was a little bit of a spiritual birthplace for me and cultural birthplace and caused me to, you know, find a, a number of really good jobs and opportunities to try to contribute. Uh, to my own community, whether it was working for Indigenous political organizations at the regional or national level, mm-hmm. uh, working uh, as an administ- uh, assistant deputy minister federally. Um, I got to work with Bob Ray when he was premier, uh, helping to negotiate okay. the Charlottetown Accord, which was really cool. Premier Ray, was he was so great to uh, to, to work with. Um, and then working with Phil Fontaine when he was national chief was one of the highlights of my whole career. I was his chief of staff and worked on negotiating the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. Then I left the AFN to set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and um, um, spent time meeting with survivors all over the country, church groups about you know, what a TRC would look like in Canada, because there's no template for yeah. a TRC. Yeah. So we, we made our own. And uh, I think we did a good job considering, you know, the great work that the TRC has done. And uh, later I was chief of staff to National Chief Perry Bellegarde. I got to work on a couple historic pieces of legislation on child welfare and indigenous languages. So I've been really blessed to have been able to work at really um, um, some important levels in terms of Indigenous and non-Indigenous government. Um, to bring that experience to Queen's University was uh, was a real blessing. Uh, teaching reconciliation and First Nation governance for about the last 12 years uh, has been yeah. has been great. Um, and, uh, you know, I think about that in terms of the um, journey that the students have been on, because every course is like a journey, and um, mm. the foundation that people have now is way different than even 10 or 12 years ago, where okay. there was still a lot of skepticism about residential schools and what really happened. And um, so that's been, it's been an interesting experience to see some of these evolution of thought and knowledge and uh, a sense of urgency on many issues, really close up. What a, a couple of things I want to pick up on there. First, just that sounds like it was a pivotal, pivotal moment for you when you went to Africa, to Congo. What, like, you, like you said, you got to see some of their culture, but had that not happened, do you think that this path would have found itself towards you? Or, or was there something there that really shook you that said you had to get more connected to your culture? I, I think I may eventually have got there, um, yeah. but, but I really think that experiencing that tribal life and that culture um, really accelerated everything for me in terms of both mm-hmm. my desire uh, to uh, want to understand and my desire to to contribute. I think I could have been like an armchair contributor, 
because mm -hmm. you know it was a good thing to do or the right thing to do or something I'm, I'm not sure but I think it that accelerated my desire to um, to contribute when you became an assistant deputy minister within the federal government what, what, like was that a was that a common thing for an indigenous person to have such a high place in leadership at that time or um, was that some, somewhat of a unique role? Yeah, the, there was a couple people that had uh, achieved uh, similar status uh, before me, and and then other yeah. people in elected uh, positions and in the Senate, but within the uh, bureaucracy itself, <clears throat> it was pretty unique, and uh, and I was pretty young, both to be an assistant deputy minister, um, and. Um, and and as you say, like being indigenous was was another sort of unique factor. Uh, I mean, I had people that ended up working for me sometime, one case for about a week, uh, because he didn't want to work for an indigenous person, and he was a highly ranked federal public servant. So you know, some of the attitudes uh, uh, really required a bit of a shakeup. What was what was the concern like without getting to the specifics? But what was the general sort of concern about it? You know, I I think he was a person that was used to exerting authority and power over indigenous people, and then having to report to one. I think really yeah. kind of upset his psychic apple cart or something, and uh, <laughs> um, he uh, he just couldn't take it and. Uh, you know, he, it was one of the weirdest things. He came in and, and told me, he says, you know, Bob, you know, uh, I um, I was talking to my mom. This uh, He was oh, 20 years older than me. He said, I talked to my mom and I said, Mom, am, am I indigenous? And she goes, no, you know, fill in the blank for the name. You're you're not indigenous. And he said, so I just figured that my uh, my my best chance of moving up within the public servant service is not to work for you and go somewhere else because because I'm not indigenous and it, it was one of the weirdest exchanges but people knew this guy yeah. too as being kind of a racist a bit of a jerk actually a couple of chiefs mm. said to me if you do nothing else when you go into that job but get rid of this one person we'll consider it a success mm -hmm. And he left after the first week, not because I got rid of him, but because he didn't want to work for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You also talked about attitudes just within or perspectives or thoughts on um, how the evolution of the students that you've worked with over the past 10, 12 years has evolved. Tell me more about that. So I, I think much like, um, much like Canada, um, the students, the course I taught was about uh, the future of indigenous policy in light of reconciliation that that sort of theme mm. and so to set the um, foundation for reconciliation it was to talk about residential schools and and many people started out sort of doubting um, residential schools or perhaps the impact or the severity or the seriousness of residential schools and it took quite a while I would have survivors come into my class and talk about their experience and then the students as a whole would come to a point of, yes, uh, residential schools happen and it was serious. And then they would go to the next place, which would be um, a place of a bit of anger and frustration. Mm -hmm. Here I am at Queen's University 
in graduate studies and finding yeah. out about this for the first time and why why was this hidden from me what yeah. what about my parents why didn't they tell me what about my pastor or my minister or my priest or my rabbi why didn't they tell me about this why didn't my undergrad profs tell me about this why am i yeah. finding out about it now so that a bit of anger and then they would go to a place of uh, we've got to do something about this. And, uh, and some of them did. Some of them, I keep in touch with a lot of my students. Some of them have done great things. Uh, some yeah. of them changed their mind, which is pretty good in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that journey is different for so many, so many people. And then what I'm seeing now is some of those students, they have children who are finding out about residential school in elementary school and and maybe no more than their parents do or finding out through yeah. the Downey Winjack fund uh, about that story mm -hmm. of Cheney Winjack and uh, so so things are changing there's no question in my mind that uh, that things are changing for for the positive it's interesting to think that like I mean I went through that program and uh, that 10, 12 years ago, that graduate students had a hard time um, understanding this, the severity of the residential schools. That, that, su that surprises me, but then it also, like, I just know from my own elementary school education or middle school education, there was nothing. I don't remember yeah. there being much. And if there was, maybe it was a blurb. I don't even, I don't even think that. It was... I know I, the feelings I went through when I first really learned and understood about this. Um, but also it's interesting though, if you're saying that sometimes people were still kind of, I don't know if it was denying it or maybe discounting the severity of it. That, that to me is still a bit um, surprising. I don't know how, how, you, how you're feeling, how you felt about that. But um, uh, do, you, do you feel that within the public services itself, like within the bureaucracy that inroads have been made in terms of you know, obviously, there's a lot of adaptation, adoption of um, of GBA plus and that lens, and there's every public service across Canada. I imagine has like some sort of indigenous framework, or um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and how to, and especially also introducing training and mandatory training for that matter for um, around um, the history of indigenous peoples. Is that? Do you think it's making a difference? I, I I think it is. I, you know, so much of the success of government depends on public servants really doing some excellent work. I mean, ministers can stand yeah. up and talk about, you know, things that are important. Prime ministers can, but the the public service is really the key. That sort of the nuts and bolts of getting things done. And so I think those attitudinal yeah. changes that have happened, um, the federal public service really dedicating a lot of time and money to training to trying to live up to those calls to action that were directed at, at them and I've witnessed that I've been part of training with a number of departments um, and with folks that are kind of uh, um, tangential to government like the Bank of Canada and Canada Post so you see a lot of mm -hmm. Crown corporations and other parts of government that are stepping up, and um, that's a lot of people. 
just imagining if we could get sort of a sea change of attitude within the federal public service and and they all talk to their kids or their neighbor or somebody about this that's yeah. that's some pretty profound change that uh, yeah. that's going on and we might not see the payoff like right away but but we are seeing some payoff there's no doubt in my mind yeah for sure I just uh, um, I just told my mom probably a week or so ago because I had to take mandatory training through through um, the municipality I work with and I was just trying to it was an interesting framing of how they talked about the residential schools that I was able to tell my mom who has no real understanding she I've told talked to her about it before in the past but it was just the way I was able to frame it to her really sat with her and she was able to to understand that I, I was thinking about though um, you know she's she's been in Canada since since the since the 70s but I think about other newcomers who come to this country mm. and are maybe not um, who don't have an awareness about um, the, uh, Canada's history and its history with Indigenous peoples. Do you think that there's work that's happening right now to help newcomers understand this? And how critical do you think that is in terms of, you know, moving forward in reconciliation efforts? Oh, I think it's just, I think it's so, so very important. Uh, you know, we mm -hmm. see changes happening with um, uh, the oath, in terms of putting treaties into the oath, um, yeah. the um, I don't know whether it's like a, uh, an exam that people take uh, about Canada, and there's Indigenous questions in there. Sometimes there's elders that are part of the swearing-in ceremony, which I think are all really great things. Uh, mm -hmm. I know I've worked with a lot of uh, different councils of new new uh, Canadians, uh, Indo Indo uh, Canadian associations, the Tamils, um, Chinese business uh, um, uh, associations, just a lot of different ones. And, and I think it's critical um, that, uh, that they have that understanding. You know, if I can just share yeah. two quick stories. Um, I had a group of, of students come and approach me uh, several years ago who had taken my course on reconciliation. And they said, um, you know, can we buy you lunch? And I'm like, heck yeah, you can buy me lunch. And they were Muslim students. Anytime. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. were Muslim students. And a lot of them were really active. They were, you know, members of trade unions and uh, uh, really engaged. And, and they said that uh, they wanted to do some work on reconciliation. And they talked to some of the elders in their community and some of the people within the mosque. And, and people were saying, you know what, that's, that's really between the Christians and, um, and Aboriginal people, mm. or it's between white people and Aboriginal people. That's not really for us. And um, so they said, what do you think about that? And I said, well, respectfully, I, I think that's wrong. Mm. Um, I said, it seems to me that this minute that you touch your foot on Canadian soil, you're benefiting from the dispossession um, and the racist attitudes and the um, terrible effects of residential schools, of the Indian Act. Yeah. All of these things um, have made many of our communities powerless and have hurt mm -hmm. our communities in a profound way. And that 
even if you don't have a history of being part of that, that you're benefiting from that. And, yeah. and from my sort of simple equation is if you're benefiting from that, then you should have a role in reconciliation. You should have a role in terms of making things right. You should have a role in terms of this reckoning that's going on in terms of decolonization and mm -hmm. ensuring indigenous thought is brought to bear on so much of decision-making in this country. That, uh, and, and to see some of the leadership that's you know come forth from new Canadians uh, I, I find it really heartening. I really do, because uh, you know sometimes, sometimes the old stock uh, Canadians are the biggest deniers in terms of, uh, of of what's going on. And you know we have people here who come from other parts of the world. Some of them have really suffered, and uh, sure. and maybe they're able to see suffering a lot easier. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great point. Um, well, how would you how would you say relations with the federal government are these days with indigenous peoples and and the government? Um, <clears throat> this is a tough one. I mean, since yeah. since Prime Minister Trudeau has been Prime Minister, we have seen historic financial um, allocations to deal with some of the toughest issues. Uh, in this country, whether it's education mm -hmm. or um, health and welfare, child welfare, um, mm -hmm. these are historic, the funding allocations. Mm. Um, sometimes it's not experienced um, immediately in communities. So that sense mm -hmm. of being stuck or that sense of frustration still exists yeah. in probably most communities in, in Canada. But yeah. And, and when, when I think about when I think about government putting money into education as an example. I mean most governments want to put money into, oh we help construct this new bridge or here's our sign, we're paving right. this road or we're doing right. you know, this big project, infrastructure stuff. But to put money into education where you know <laughs> You don't go and hang a sign on the school and say, you know, the next generation brought to you by no. You don't get a whole yeah. you don't get a whole lot of accolades for that. And maybe the payoff is ten years down the road where the graduation mm -hmm. rates have gone up, have gone through the roof maybe. And people mm -hmm. are confident they're going into university and college in huge numbers. So I, I think that's really brave and I'm really um, grateful that government has taken steps in some of those directions where you know it's it's not not the big immediate payoff and you get you know yeah uh political payoff right away um those are hard things to put money into because of because the benefits are not realized right away and these are yeah. system changes right and they take a long time and so so it would have been detrimental would you say if if the government sort of focused on like the the big shiny things or like you said um you know in other forms of spending it's always on these big capital infrastructure projects that people say that people see do you think that there's there there maybe is a place for that but but in in this situation um the steps that this government is taking 
is probably for the better because it requires that courage. It makes those system changes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of our leaders say education got us into this mess. Education is going to get us out. So I think that's a big deal. You know, we still have to deal with issues of unclean drinking water and moldy homes and, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. you know, lack of uh, modern infrastructure in our community. So those things still need to go forward. But these other pieces that aren't so clearly visible also require uh, attention. And then legislatively, we've seen some good changes too. We've seen C-15 go through, which was recognition Mm -hmm. of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. Mm -hmm. It's another one of those things where, you know, everybody's kind of jockeying around, like, what does this really mean? And is it a big constitutional change or is it just, you know, shining something up that was already there? And and we're not sure. Uh, my my own sense is that that we're due for some big change um, mm. coming down the road because of C15, uh, and it'll take a while for us all to get comfortable with the notion of like free prior informed consent, or mm. indigenous self government, mm. or the idea that this is part of of decolonization, and ensuring that indigenous yeah. people are part of decision-making in Canada when it comes to how to use the fiscal framework and how to use legislation to advance the interests of everybody in this Canada, in Canada. How to make sure that 50% of First Nations children don't grow up in poverty. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we can do all these things. I, you know, I, I think about one of the elders I was talking to about a year ago, he talked about COVID as a teacher. He says, so he said to him, he says, what has COVID taught you? And I think it's a really good question. And like one yeah. of the things it's taught me is that we don't need to accept the status quo. We do mm-hmm. not need to accept the status quo and those things. Well, you know, there's cracks in society and people are going to fall through them and there's disparities and there's right. rich. We don't need to accept that because we've shown that when things are important, we can do it incredible, extraordinary things as a country in terms of whether we're supporting businesses or supporting individuals, it was extraordinary. Hmm. Would you, how would you say the view is, and I'd imagine there's so much, so many diverse opinions about this, but within, if if you, could you broadly maybe, broadly describe maybe describe or, or kind of give a feeler out about the um, the community's views on how the government is responding so making these big systemic changes but is it is it is the view internally just you know not quick enough too little or do people understand what these changes really really mean and they will take time but um, People are there, or people are patient. Are there generational differ, uh, di- generational differing views? Like, are, are younger indigenous um, uh, indigenous Canadians are they um, you know less patient about change? I, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think generally uh, there's a lot of frustration in terms of the yeah. pace of change and the types of change okay. that um, that that we're seeing. <clears throat> and I think, you know, reconciliation is a, is a double-edged sword. Um, mm. You know, when government does something that, um, 
you know, is contrary to what Indigenous people are thinking they should do, then it's like, well, there you go. There goes reconciliation for you. Um, right. And then when Indigenous people do something, then then government or non-Indigenous people say, well, there you go. There's reconciliation for you. I mean, it's a tough road, reconciliation. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think there's generally a frustration, um, and I think it's probably greater for the for for youth and 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 the more that we've found out about the treatment of uh, of our elders through residential school or through indian day school or through the child welfare system then i think that compounds the frustration of yeah. uh of the need to get things right and the need to have action to get past like ex, you know apologies or statements of sorrow and like let's let's get moving and uh, um, and and poverty is just such a huge issue. I mean that's and when people are living that it's hard to convince them that things are going to be okay down the road because it's yeah. it's gr you that, know, that, that's a grinding route. Yeah, yeah. Is that you mentioned poverty? I mean, are there certain issues that really stand out for you right now in terms of what needs to be worked on with indigenous communities? Yeah, I, I think it's a number of things all at the same time. Um, so education yeah. clearly is, is part of that. Um, I, I think, you know, we've seen some of the, the change from corporate Canada in terms of, you know, trying to work more closely with, with Indigenous people where it's possible, mm -hmm. um, rather than kind of just um, riding roughshod over the rights of Indigenous people. So there's been changes there. Um, but at, at the same time, I think, you know, in a lot of places in Canada, Indigenous people see wealth, you know, just going down the highway beside them. And whether that's mining or forestry or whatever that may be, and they're, and you know, it, it's a legitimate question. Like, what about us? Like, that that's our land. Um, yeah. Why aren't we benefiting from that? What yeah. could we be yeah. doing different? Uh, how can we set up the fiscal framework differently? so that um, um, provinces in particular uh, step up and do resource uh, revenue sharing with, with Indigenous people mm -hmm. to share some of that tax base uh, with, with Indigenous yeah. people. So, you know, we, we've got yeah. some, some way to go in, in, in those areas because it's an uneven um, playing ground and you can see that when, when people have to go to, you know, blockading trains or laying down in front of bulldozers to be able mm -hmm. to get their point of view across, you know, there's something going, there's something wrong Absolutely. with the sort of dialogue yeah. we're having as a country. Yep. Yep. On the, on the resources sharing, there's, there seems to be this sort of ongoing, I don't know if it's tension, but we're seeing here in Alberta, you know, there are First Nations who want to partner with the government or or at least, um, you know, for example, in the Trans Mountain Pipeline, be a part of that project. But then there are also First Nations in, in other parts of the country, particularly in B.C., who are opposing that particular project or, or, or the extraction of resources. It's I always I think about sort of broadly how uh, non-Indigenous Canadians view that sort of um, because I, I don't think people understand the diversity that there is between First Nations, right? And 
And I think I, I wonder if non-Indigenous Canadians just view that as, you know, well, there's disagreement there, and and what does that really mean? And um, but it's 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 interesting to see those discrepancies on on some of these bigger issues, especially like resource sharing or resource extraction. Yeah, I, I, I think it is too. And like to try to imagine with 634 First Nations in Canada that we would all think exactly the same about any particular mm -hmm. thing is, is a fantasy, of course. Um, yeah. Any more yeah. than how some of the provinces reacted to, you know, Trans-Canada Pipeline and, uh, mm -hmm. and um, other interprovincial resource issues. Where, where provinces yep. disagree with each other and, and say, well, you know, it, do whatever you want to do, province X, because we're not going to approve it when it comes to, to our border. Um, so that's, yeah. that's part of, you know, that's part of life in Canada is trying to sort through some of those, those really tough issues. You said over 600, would you say 630? Is that what you said? How many First yeah. Nations were there, Bob? Yes, yes. Around there. How do you, as someone who, you know, st steered the, the Indian school, Indian residential school uh, settlement agreement, and then worked on the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where do you even start? <laughs> Why is, I, like, I don't even know how you approach that. Like, where, let's start with the, the residential school agreement. That happened in was it two thousand and six? That happened yeah. around then. Yeah. 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 Where do you, you, where know, do you start, Bob? When you're when you're leading that. Yeah. Well, fortunately, I I I, I wasn't leading. I was part of a leadership group. Um, okay. But that, I think it it starts with like almost any really good enterprise with a lot of really significant mm. principles and values to help underscore um, uh, change so that you have those touchstones mm -hmm. to rely upon when things get get tough and then mm -hmm. and, and then I think this this quest for justice um, uh, is 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 really significant um, mm -hmm. for us it was identifying also some of the weaknesses in federal re responses to, to residential schools and and taking apart you know some of the work that they put out in terms of of uh, alternative dispute resolution and just you know laying bare some of the the real problems with with the approach that that they were taking mm -hmm. and um, um, and I think tr trying to make sure that um, there was a system in place so that every survivor of residential schools could could see some um, uh, some acknowledgement of uh, mm -hmm. the suffering that they had had or, or their experience and and an ability to adjudicate some of those issues outside of a court so that um, they weren't re-victimized so so putting those mm -hmm. those systems in place and 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 we were guided by residential school survivors. We were guided by elders, in terms of the work that we were doing. You know, I, I think back on that settlement agreement. Um, it was historic, at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think if we would do it all again now, there might be some things that that were different. But um, 
you know, there was, I think, like 50 church entities that were part of that mm. and the federal government and a few, you know, lawyers representing, I think there was 10 class actions that were going on at the same time. So it was a complicated and complex uh, pr process. But again, right. I think it all starts with uh, those values and principles and the fact that we had ongoing guidance from survivors and from elders. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd be the first to admit that it's, it wasn't a perfect agreement. Um, hmm. But I think it was really good. Was it true that uh, that the preference was actually to bring it through the courts and then the federal government at the times felt that by bringing it through the courts that it could essentially stall not or hold up the business of the court or that it would um, and so they wanted to move towards an agreement is, is there some truth to that well at, at that time I think that there was a some 10,000 court cases that were already going through the court system and and maybe it was seven class actions that were making their way through and it was really clear that to deal with that backlog it would take decades and mm -hmm. that many people that started court cases may not have been around by the time um, their court case was actually going to be heard mm -hmm. so part of that idea is like how could we how could we expedite this this process and have yeah. one massive class action right. and we did go through all those uh, provinces where there were court cases and class actions to get mm -hmm. sign off on um, on on the uh, uh, the larger class action uh, to get mm -hmm. that certification and that uh, sign off from the courts and I, I think that made it easier for government to do that it wasn't sort of purely a political decision that it was also right. um, a legal decision that was supported by a number of courts right across the country. Hmm. What is it? What does it mean for the attention that? Um, what, what does it mean for the attention that um, these cases got, um, or the the history that Indigenous peoples experience as a result of the residential schools? What does it mean for the for that when it goes through a settlement agreement versus if it had gone through the court system? That 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 that's hard to say. I mean, court systems are um, can be incredibly confrontational and um, mm. kind of like a winner and a loser um, situation. And and what what we tried to do is to to ensure that um, everybody got got recognition. Um, mm. Even if you only attended residential school for one day, yeah. that there was recognition. Mm. And that if you were um, wanting to go through for settlement for um, sexual abuse or physical abuse, that there was uh, arbitration system put in place that wasn't adversarial like the courts. Mm -hmm. So you could have elders with you could have your own support um, and and the idea was that that it would be less confrontational it would, um, mm -hmm. than than a court um, 
So, so that that was was some of the ideas that that were part of that settlement agreement. Uh, one that um, everybody that attended residential school and that was still uh, alive got some compensation. And then for more serious cases, yeah. not having to go to the courts. Some people chose to anyway. Um, yeah. And setting up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that was part of the settlement agreement. Mm -hmm. A commemoration mm -hmm. fund, so, so communities could do their own, their own uh, commemoration. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of significant parts to that uh, settlement uh, agreement. I mean, it gave, it gave birth to the idea of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada yeah. Um, which was unique. It was the first TRC in in a first world country. Mm. Um, um, the very first one. And, and, and that's significant. Yeah. Yeah. What about the apology that um, Prime Minister uh, Harper had given? I can't remember. Was it 2008 or nine? Eight. Um, eight. Was that... Uh, w did that come out of the was that something that the government of Canada did on its own volition or was that something that came out of the, the settlement agreement at all or no it actually came out from um, I think it was when Pope John Paul died there was a delegation that went to his okay. funeral and Paul Martin okay. was Prime Minister at the time and yep. he invited Phil Fontaine to uh, to travel with him as part of Canada's delegation. Mm -hmm. And when they were talking, um, Prime Minister said, uh, National Chief, something like this, if, if there's one thing you want to accomplish while you're National Chief, what would it be? He says, I want to deal with residential schools. Mm -hmm. And Prime Minister said, okay, we're going to do that. And then National Chief said, and I want an apology from the Prime Minister in the House of Commons mm -hmm. for... Canada's role in residential schools and they mm -hmm. shook hands on that that was the deal mm -hmm. the Prime Minister and Phil Fontaine shaking hands and yeah. to his credit Stephen Harper honored that because by the time that rolled around Paul Martin was no longer Prime Minister right. and uh, um, you know some of the um, ins and outs of the apology and who would be allowed in the House of Commons. I mean, the Indigenous delegations insisted that they be like on the floor of the House of Commons near the Prime Minister to receive the apology. And they were told, no, there's all these nice spots up in the gallery that where you can sit. And they said, no, that's not good enough. And we want the right to respond. And they said, well, you're not an elected member. You don't have like a right of response. And then some of the leaders of the opposition parties, um, Stefan Dion, Elizabeth May, uh, stepped forward and said, you know, I'm willing to give up my right of response to the national leaders. And mm. a number of MPs did. And then the Senate said, if you can't respond in the House of Commons, come over to the Senate. You can respond <laughs> from here. Right. And so there was yeah. a lot of pressure that was put on uh, the Prime Minister's office. And to their credit, um, they accommodated that. And it was historic. The apology itself was historic. Um, what the Indigenous leadership talked about was historic. Having the oldest residential school survivor in Canada as part of that delegation was historic. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I mean, I, I was there. There wasn't a dry eye in the place, I'm sure. And um, there was thousands of people gathered on the lawn uh, out in front of the parliament buildings, big, huge screens that were broadcasting all of that. Um, libraries and schools right across the country watching it. It was, uh, it was, it was historic. Set me, set me straight here, Bob. When I, when we, uh, like you said, your students went through this process of like, wow, there's this problem. I can understand that it's bad to like feeling anger and shame about it to saying, now I want to make a difference and, and have some solutions. But at this point in time, we're here we are right now, looking back thinking, to the, it, took, it took until 2008 for the government of Canada to issue an apology as you said, it was historic, but a part of me still feels like, why did it take so long? I don't know if you can set me straight in saying, you know, it's like, I don't know, that's okay, or um, it, that's the course it was meant to run, and, and 2008 actually wasn't long ago, or is there a part of you that feels like 2008, you know, that apology should have been issued a long time ago? You know, that that that's a great question. I mean, part of me would say it's never too early to apologize for for a wrongdoing, especially a terrible wrongdoing. And then then I think about, you know, what people would call kind of the black hats and the white hats within the Department of Justice, arguing over whether or not an apology is an admission of guilt and whether that, you know, sets you up for more lawsuits oh, yes. and these huge yeah, debates yeah. going on uh, about yeah. that. And and seeing other countries just kind of say, you know what, we don't care, we're going to apologize, like Australia. Mm. Um, and uh, but like those arguments took place. Um, mm. The uh, you know some of the churches that already apologized, um, you know, really profound apologies, much like what we heard today from uh, from Pope Francis. I mean, I think of the mm. Anglican Church the primate saying that we failed God. He mm. said to survivors, and I don't know if I'm quoting this exactly right, but it's something like, um, we failed you, we failed ourselves, and we failed God. Mm. And I remember talking to the primate saying, wow, like to say we failed God, like that's a pretty big deal. He said, well, we did. There's no doubt about yeah. that. And he said, and we have to say that so that our congregations understand the seriousness of what we're talking about and why we're committed to reconciliation. Um, so there's there's still that that part. I, I mean, I think philosophically you might say, well, everything happens at, at its own time and say, well, that was the right time. I, I don't know if, if, if that's true. I mean, even even today, one of the things that you end up hearing is, Oh my goodness, you know, if only my dad could have heard this 10 years ago, he's mm -hmm. gone now, mm -hmm. or my mom, or my grandma, and, um, you know, I, to, to me that just really speaks so much of it's, it's never too early to, um, to, to give an apology. Uh, you know, Phil yeah. Fontaine led a delegation to meet Pope Benedict in 2009 and mm -hmm. um, why didn't we get an apology then 
why didn't we? Yeah, why not a few years ago when when uh, when Prime Minister Trudeau had asked Pope Francis for an apology, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I have a question before I get into the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and and more of your thoughts about the the papal visit. Um, I I learned something recently, and I wanted to know if if you have any uh, if this is true or not. Uh, but when when the treaties were established, uh, my understanding is that it was um, the women of the indigenous community that actually wanted that went as signatories to the government of Canada. The government of Canada then refused. Um, the women and they said go back and go get your men to sign off on this thing but that the women essentially as part of the treaty they wanted to insert education into the treaties and they they thought that they knew that the importance of of indigenous children receiving education uh, i don't know if there's any truth to that but then m my understanding is that part of the driver for the government at that time i guess the first government was to, in order to fulfill the education requirement, they came up with the residential schools. Is there any truth to that? You, you know, that's, I, I'm not sure. I mean, part of me would say absolutely. Um, our women leaders would have insisted on that. Um, I, I don't know if that happened. Um, mm. I know that education's in a number of treaties. And, and education mm -hmm. is a treaty right, um, mm -hmm. but I, but I don't know if it happened. That that's so interesting. I, now I I got to go and and, <laughs> and research this because I it just sounds so um, so so really interesting, um, but yeah. but I'm not sure. And yeah. Um, yeah. This part doesn't matter so much. It, it it's like I I think. I think it's very clear on the intentions of the government of that day and, and subsequent governments perhaps after about uh, what they wanted to do to indigenous culture and that's very, very evident. But I, I do, when I heard about this, I did wonder about if they didn't have the requirement uh, to provide education as part of a treaty right, what, what would have happened? Like, would it have been any different like would the structure and would this whole system have come out and and it, it just a part of me my brain went that way um, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on that though you know I think that you know for for as long as there's been uh, church representatives in, in what's now Canada there's been mm -hmm. some different attempts and different experiments with respect to education of yeah. indigenous people and and it's been you know those maybe three cornerstones that were part of residential schools, that idea of assimilation, civilization, and Christianization of yeah. children have been those themes in, in many different experiments in terms of how education could work. One of the things that gets talked about is um, before residential schools, there were industrial schools where, you know, the job was assimilation, civilization, and Christianization, and mm -hmm. sort of teaching boys maybe how to be farmers, or uh, how, to, how to be carpenters, or and some academics, and girls how to clean and cook and sew uh, and garden, and some academic. And one of the things that got said 
and this was the complaint from the churches, was that um, the wigwam was stronger than the classroom, which meant that all the good work being done during the day to assimilate, civilize, and Christianize children was being undone at night when they went home to their loving families, their parents and their siblings and their extended mm -hmm. family. And the idea was that in order to really accomplish those three objectives, these children had to be separated from their families. So the idea of residential schools was born out of that need to, to separate, to get the children uh, out of the influence of their families. Uh, mm -hmm. Because as, as you know, one of the things that got talked about and was actually confirmed in Prime Minister Harper's apology, uh, one of the uh, objectives of residential schools was to kill the Indian and the child. Yeah. Kill the Indian and the child. Yeah. So that meant really having to remove children from the influence of, uh, of their families and their communities. Yeah. Um, that and, and what that did to just the fabric of Indigenous society, right, of children being the center of Indigenous society. Yeah. And, and, and like none of that was, you know, well, maybe that was thought about or maybe that was well understood but we're certainly seeing the effects of effects of that um, yeah no question it, it really does show that I mean those children suffered incredibly there's no question about that yeah and but their parents did too and their mm -hmm. communities did too um, chief Bobby Joseph he says that in his language the word for child or children translates to something like um, our reason for being. So just imagine your your reason for being is taken away. And he would say there there was no longer any laughter in the communities because children represented that laughter. So yeah. people were harmed in every aspect of a community. Yeah, reason for being, absolutely. I mean, I feel that way but my four and a half year old daughter and to yeah, think that yeah, for um, sure. some of these kids were between four and 16, you know, four years old taken away. Um, and, and, uh, yeah. Um, the truth and reconciliation commission, um, we kind of talked about sort of the, how do you start, how do you, where do you, and how do you start? Um, but particularly on the, in, within the 94 calls to action, there were a set of actions around the Catholic church, and particularly around the Pope and uh, having a papal apology. What was, what was so critical about that? Well, one, I think that the um, Catholic Church and the different orders within the Catholic Church uh, ran the majority of residential schools. And I saw today they were mm -hmm. talking about 60%. Um, I've, I've used the number 70% for a long time so now I need to go back and do some homework and see which number was right. But a significant <laughs> yeah. number of schools were run by uh, Catholic orders. Um, and then of course, some of these papal bulls that ended up being, you know, all parts of the Doctrine of Discovery and Terra Nullius uh, were central to um, notions of imperialism and um, uh, colonial supremacy, uh, well, not just here in the Americas, but in many parts of the world. But I mean, what we're talking about is here, and and how those notions mm -hmm. of supremacy 
um, ended up manifesting themselves in terms of relationship between indigenous people and uh, colonial governments is is part of the history of uh, of Canada. So um, mm. it's it's no surprise that that attention was paid um, to to the Catholic Church um, because of so many schools that were run by them. And it's not like the other forty percent or the other thirty percent were run by one entity. Some were Anglican, some were United Church, some yeah. were Presbyterian, some were Methodist, others as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can I, I, I'm sure you have heard, uh, maybe you've heard the apology or read the apology, but um, can I read a couple of excerpts here from, from the apology today? Would sure, please. Okay? Yeah. So, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, there was a lengthy apology, but there's some key paragraphs here that I want to read. It says, I'm here because the first step of my penitential pilgrimage among you is that of again asking asking forgiveness, of telling you once more that I'm deeply sorry, sorry for the ways in which regret regrettably many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppressed the indigenous peoples. I'm sorry I asked I am sorry I ask for forgiveness, in particular, in particular for the ways in which many members of the church and of religious communities cooperated, not least through their indifference in projects of cultural destruction and forced assimilation promoted by the governments of that time, which culminated in the system of residential schools. You know, it, it goes on. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I, again, I imagine there's a lot of differing opinions in, in views on the Pope's visit and whether people want to pay attention to it or not or um, just even the words from the apology but for you um, what is what does this mean you know for for me I, I start off with what it's called this pilgrimage of penance uh, which I think is significant you know a pilgrimage talks about like a sacred journey and and he's in our sacred territories and i just struck with that idea of this sacred journey and then that idea about penance sort of that outward expression of of sorrow for wrongdoing and so this is that spiritual sacred journey about outwardly um, expressing shame uh, for wrongdoing so I, I think that's significant just all by itself. And I think those words that were spoken that you quoted are significant. Asking indigenous people, the survivors, and their families for forgiveness. Um, that takes a lot of humility to do that. Mm -hmm. And to think of one of the most powerful people in the world displaying that courage and humility, I, I find it, it's really striking. And, and I think about the Pope not just as the head of the Catholic Church, I think about him as an elder too. And he kind of mm -hmm. displayed that he was an elder today. He was really hurting physically being up there, yeah. but hurting spiritually too. Um, and um, so I, 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 for me it was really significant one that he fulfilled this promise that he made four months ago that he was going to come here to our lands 
and to um, fulfill you know the next step on this journey and we'll see more during the week I think um, because I think some people were saying well you know he he might have touched on this or he might have touched on that I think we'll hear more things this week uh, from from his holiness um, and and going beyond just talking about you know bad bad individuals but talking about the role of the church I think is significant you know one of the quotes he said it is in the face of this deplorable evil the church kneels before God and implores his forgiveness for the sins of her children Wow like yeah. that's that's really something mm. the church kneels before God and implores his forgiveness <laughs> and I I, re I read that too and I had the same reaction Bob yeah and, and then he quotes Elie uh, Wiesel, which, which I think mm -hmm. is brilliant too. I've loved Wiesel for a long, long time. And uh, so not shying away from some of those comparisons um, between our experience and, uh, and the Holocaust. Like I, I, th Holocaust. I think that uh, um, like he didn't say they're, they're the same or anything, but he, but that um uh, profound impact on humanity i think is mm -hmm. uh is significant mm -hmm. yeah i want to i want to just pivot a bit and then if you're okay I, i'd like to i'm just checking we're at the about an hour here and, and i want to ask uh, like we do with every guest our final two questions but you know there there are a lot of um, there are many issues that uh, that we all are commonly having to tackle together, and the one I you know was on a focus obviously these days is something like like climate change, and I actually read in your bio that you know um, there's a bit of an environmental side to you and from a traditional aspect, and I, I'm you know I'm curious about what the approach might be from and. Again, you probably can't generalize this in any way, but what an indigenous approach to climate change would look like, and would it be different from what most governments are trying to achieve these days when it comes to climate? Yeah, I, 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 th I think it would be. I think it, it would start from most indigenous perspectives with profound regard and love <clears throat> for Mother Earth and that acknowledgement of how she takes care of us and from a reciprocal point of view how we need to take care of her so i i think it starts there mm -hmm. and and i think you know as my daughter vanessa would say and did say in her dissertation it also speaks about recognizing the the agency of mother earth that uh, we need to listen for her voice and and her desires and her cares and her thoughts in terms of how we make decisions and i'd say that we have tools and thoughts like the two row wampum um, and like the dish with one spoon which i really love i um i, I was talking to an elder not that long ago and i was we were talking about the dish with one spoon treaty and I, I told him, I said, well, like, here's my understanding. And it was pretty superficial when I think about it. 
And he said, yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's true. He said, but really it's a global economic model. And I said, well, you know, that's a little bit different than what I was talking about. <laughs> I said, tell me more, will you? And he goes, yeah, sure. He said, you know, the dish, that's, that's the whole earth. And, um, and the spoon represents the wise distribution of resources. Mm. But there's only one spoon. Mm. And he said, so we need to come together and figure out, like, how do, how do we use that spoon? And um, who would be somebody that you would trust to be able to use that spoon to ensure the wise distribution of resources so that all of us have a chance, all of us are taken mm. care of? And that that spoon is being used in a way so that we ensure that there's resources and a quality of living for the next seven generations. So we have to take into account our great, 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 great grandchildren as we make yeah. decisions. And then we need to recognize that the dish has agency. And so how do we take into account the Earth's agency in terms of a decision making? And so he just like just kept going like one circle out after another and it was like whoa that's <laughs> when you think about a model and um it it's something we could do i mean there's nothing that would stop us from saying you know figuring out something that's analogous to that spoon in terms of policy or legislation that would say how are we going to wield this law or how are we going to do this in a way that really ensures that uh, we're all taken care of and that mm -hmm. we're doing things for the next seven generations for all of our children in this mm -hmm. land and uh, that we're taking into account the rights of of the earth in terms of how we're doing this i mean we could do that now yeah we could and some people are doing it in a small way but we need to do it in a global way love it um yeah, that's, that's an interesting analogy that your friend gave you for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Bob, are you okay if we pivot to our final two questions? Yeah, sure. So we asked this of all of our guests. Uh, our first question is around five for dinner, dead or alive, who are five people that you'd want to have a dinner with? And, and I don't know if you'd want them individually or together, but who would those five be? Uh, well, the, you know, when I when I saw those questions, I said, "This is this is going to be the most fun part of the interview." And then I thought, "This is now the <laughs> it's the hardest part of this podcast is figuring mm -hmm. that out." So I would say, um, I like I want to have Sitting Bull at the table, mm -hmm. and uh, one of the most famous chiefs in North American history. So Sitting Bull, I think, has to be there. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to have Nelson Mandela there, mm. um, uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, um, I'd like to have Abdul Baha there, who was mm. uh, a central figure in the Baha'i faith, and okay. uh, yeah. and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to have have him there. And then I think, um, um, you know, I think we need some some real beauty um, at at the table, and uh, I'd um, I'm thinking somebody like um, Marilyn Monroe because I think she'd have a, a lot of great stories, and uh, well, sure and and would bring <laughs> elegance and beauty uh, to, to the yeah. table, 
and then um, and then I want one of my own like very personal family heroes and and that's my granny Mel and uh, who would bring that uh, um, even though she lived a pretty modest life she uh, treated everybody like they were royalty and people always felt so so good around her and uh, and so I think having her at the table would be would be really great that's uh, I think that'd be a really good dinner dinner crowd that'd be an amazing dinner conversation and uh, what a sweet person with your with your with your granny there um, I might have the the Marilyn Monroe one individually <laughs> that might be more fun <laughs> but uh, but you know uh, my wife's going to kill me for saying that. <laughs> uh, last question. Um, beyond the circle of life, what do you know for sure? Um, I, um, one thing that I, that I know for sure is that, um, there's, um, there's there's other there's other worlds of, of experience uh, that are out there. There's other spiritual worlds that um, 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 we're all going to visit, and uh, that uh, the life that we're living here is preparing us for for those other spiritual destinations, and we'll see our loved ones and our heroes and probably like a really amazing rock band um, <laughs> in, <laughs> on that journey. So I, I just know that for sure in my heart of hearts. And uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why um, maybe I take a little bit different view about um, death and dying. Like I understand the yeah. seriousness of it and, um, and grieving and pain, but also have this underlying hope and uh and and faith in that as well yeah would you say that you have uh uh do you still have a fear of dying or do you feel like that's been that's let go of yeah i, I don't think i have a fear of dying mm -hmm. i don't want to die really miserably and yeah like sure. suffer for years like yeah but that's not a fear that's just like yeah yeah if you're going to go later let's go yeah yeah there was one of our guests said uh, when I asked this question, but what do you know for sure? He said, you know, if you let go of that fear of dying, you can pretty much do anything, right? Like wow. That's one of those, wow, one of those that's things beautiful. that just, I really like it. It just like, you know, it's one of those things that holds us back in life, right? And um, yeah, I found that interesting. So there's there's some parallels with what you said. Bob, yeah. I, I really appreciate, um, really appreciate the conversation. It was, it really was a, an honor to get to know you. Um, you know well a lot more is saying is is small with me saying that because i never really got a chance to know you but it was really a great to getting to know you and to hearing your perspectives on a number of important aspects of um, the history of indigenous peoples here in canada and on some big events that have happened are happening and continue to happen this week with the papal visit and um, i hope you enjoyed yourself as much as i in enjoyed myself and and hopefully you know we can continue to talk in the future I, I hope so too. This has been so enjoyable. I can't believe how quickly the time's gone by, and 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 I, you know I'd be really honored if I can uh, take that handle as uh, honorary nobody, and uh, um, and just uh, 
put that on my on my mantle. Absolutely, do it. I, that'd be a great blessing for us. So, thanks again, Bob. And we'll put all of Bob's uh, information in our show notes and link to his bio and, and such. And and I uh, hope you all enjoyed this episode. And we'll see you back in the fall, starting September. Thanks everyone for joining us. Have a great day. Bye bye.